This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Welcome to The Takeout. Wherever you find this show, podcast platforms, CBSN streaming, great radio stations around the country, including Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124. Thanks for finding us. This week... It's really going to be an honor and a privilege of mine because I'm going to talk to one of America's great documentary filmmakers. Stanley Nelson is his name, won Emmys, Peabody's, received the uh, National Award of Humanities from President Obama. And this year, his film, Attica, nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Film. Stanley, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks so much. And mention, I want to mention also Tracy Curry. She's your co-director on Attica. Is that also the case? Yep, yep she's my co-director. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, Stanley, because my audience tends to be a little bit younger, there are a lot of people who are my age, they may have some vague recollection of Attica, but there's a giant part of my audience who might not know anything about Attica at all. Right. Explain what it was and where it happened and what happened and when it happened. And then we'll just go from there because there's so much ground to cover. So at, in, in 1971, 50 years ago, um, the inmates at Attica Prison, which is 250 miles uh, north of New York City, in the middle of nowhere in a town called Attica, uh, took over the prison. Uh, and it was the largest prison rebellion in the history of this country. Um, they took 39 hostages, um, guards and civilian workers. And because they had hostages, the law enforcement couldn't go in and take over, take back the prison. So for five days, they had a standoff uh, with uh, the government, state government police uh, in the prison. One of the amazing things about Attica is that uh, the first day really quickly um, the inmates that have taken over the prison invited the press in. You know, they said, okay, we want the press to come in and film the whole thing so that, so they, that the world can see. And they felt that they would be protected uh, by the, the TV cameras coming in. Um, and we had a five-day uh, standoff that was on film and, 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 and was, was filmed. And the, um, the film really plays out as a, a thriller. On the fifth day, um, uh, law enforcement, over 500 law enforcement officers, um, highway patrol and, and former guards and others uh, went into the prison and, um, and, uh, yeah, and tragically, uh, over 40 people were killed. They opened fire. Yeah, they opened fire. Um, they just went in with no real plan. I mean, there was no there was no plan that could have worked out. You know, it wasn't like a plan went awry. You know, it wasn't like it was like things went bad. I mean, there was no plan. So the plan was they flew over with helicopters and dropped a uh, gas on, on the prisoners, um, which knocked them down and and kind of out of it. The prisoners had no guns, and they knew that they they knew that they had no guns, not no no guns at all. Um, and and the uh, the gas, you know, created this smoke, so you couldn't really see. And then they just started shooting. And uh, you know, amazingly, they the whole thing was filmed, so you actually see people. You know, you see the law enforcement shooting and and, and the people being killed. And Stanley, I want to give the audience a sense of this because you are so right, as well. You know, you put this together. 
This is not recreated. This is real captured film, not only of the journalists who were there, but the other thing that just blew my mind was this New York State surveillance film throughout the five days and on that culminating fifth day. And I want you to tell the audience, because it is among the most powerful of many powerful moments in the documentary, what the phrase was said to the prisoners if they surrendered when the gas was dropped and the bullets started to be fired. So the helicopter uh, circled overhead um, and dropped the gas and then started speaking from loud loudspeakers saying, uh, come, come out with your hands up, turn yourself in, you will not be harmed. You will not be harmed, turn yourself in, come out with your hands up, you will not be harmed. And it was said over and over again. And one of the most fascinating things in the film is that we found that that from doing the interviews, we have like five, six, eight people who say the exact same thing. They, they have the exact same memory. And that's not only the, the former prisoners, but National Guard also, you know, say the exact same thing. They told us to surrender Put your hands on your head. You will not be harmed. You will not be harmed. And at the same time, after they said that three or four times, they just opened fire uh, into the smoke and, and, and into, the, into the prisoners and the hostages. With the intent of it, it feels to me, Stanley, of administering ritualized violence. Yeah, I mean, it was a certain amount of, of revenge, you know, um, uh, you know, how dare these prisoners take over the prison. And, you know, I mean, and the prisoners had had microphones, you know, and, and, and TV cameras on them for five days. And they were, you know, saying what they wanted and how they wanted prisons to change. And, you know, and, and they had they, they had their say only because they had hostages and, and uh, law enforcement couldn't go back. Or, or, or didn't go back right away and take, take the prison back. And in that sense, Stanley, it feels as you watch it, it felt to me certainly that with this media coverage, there was this great inversion of the power structure. Mm. The, the inmates had a voice, were on television, could watch what those who they were talking to in the grounds would say outside the grounds. So they had sort of full view and this power dynamic was inverted, possibly for the first time. And that did not land well with either the politicians, the state police, or the community at large. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great insight to, to what was happening. Also, what was happening is, you know, you know still today, you know, the, and, and, and then also, you know, the prisons are really divided. You know, there's the black prisoners, there's the white prisoners, and there's the Spanish-speaking prisoners. And that was the way Attica was divided, too, until... They took over the prison. And then they're very clear, you know, in the film, you know, the, the black prisoners we interviewed, the white and the Puerto Rican that, that said, you know, OK, now we, we realize that we had to unite, that if we were going to survive this, we had to we had to unite and, and we had to speak as one force. You know, we were no longer, as one, one person says, we were no longer black and white and Puerto Rican. We were we were prisoners and we were all united. And that also was very, very scary. And we're going to get in the second segment, Stanley, to what they were asking for and the demands and the negotiations, because there's just so many fascinating components to that. But with about a minute 30 left, describe what kind of inmates generally were inside Attica. Were they all the worst of the worst? What kind of person would end up in Attica? And what was the racial component of the prison itself and then the guard structure that monitored it? Yeah, I mean, Attica was, was a maximum security prison. So, you know, it, it's supposed to be the worst of the worst, but, you know, prison system doesn't run run like that exactly. So L.D. Barkley, one of the spokespeople who has a, one of the most poignant stories in the film, was actually in prison for 90 days, you know, because he stole his mother he stole his mother's car and his mother reported him and he was on parole. So when he was gone, he went back for 90 days. Other people were on, you know, 25 to life and, and you know, they, they were... Uh, had committed serious crimes, so it, it, it really uh, depended on, you know, the the whim of the prison system. I'm sorry, I forgot the second part of the question. Uh, the racial composition oh, of the right. guards and the inmates themselves. Yeah, so so Attica was 70, 80 percent black and Latino, uh, and the guards were all white. 
<laughs> the, the, the actual all white, <laughs> and and they were all from from the town of Attica, and and they were not trained. I mean, it was a job, and and you know, we 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 talked to to their families, and we talk about the town of Attica because they were not trained. I mean, there were there were there was a job, and the and really the, the prison supported the town of of Attica, but you know, you just it, it was like you know you went to work at a, at the post office or something. You know, you didn't have a job on Friday, and you went on in on Monday, and you were a prison guard. Right. Attica was a company town. The company just happened to be the state correctional facility. Stanley Nelson is our special guest to the documentary film Attica. More of this fascinating conversation on the other side of the break. I'm Major Garrett. Segment two of The Takeout in just one moment. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. And when I say it's a real honor and a privilege to talk to Stanley Nelson, I really mean this. He's not only the documentary maker of, co-director of Attica, he's also done a brilliant documentary on Miles Davis, one of my all-time favorite jazz musicians, a documentary on Emmett Till, Michael Vick on the Black Panthers. Some of the most important documentary film work of the last two or three or four decades has come through Stanley Nelson, so it's just an honor to have him with us. Stanley, so let's talk about the fundamentals of the grievances of the prisoners. And did you have, when you started this project, a point of view about those grievances and about what happened to the inmates? Oh, when I started the documentary, you know, I, I really didn't understand the grievances of the inmates. And I think that that in, in, in many ways, you know, in the back of my mind, that was one of the things that drove me to do the documentary. You know, I was a, alive at the time of Attica. I was 19, 20. But, you know, we never heard of the grievances. I mean, I, I think that part of it was that, you know, it's almost like you expect, well, you know, of course they're mad. They're inmates, you know, I mean, like, I could, you know, they're not happy. They're not supposed to be happy, you know. Right. Um, but, you know, we never really knew. So, you know, why did they take over the prison? And then on, uh, on the other end, you know, why did what happened at the end, the deaths and the violence, why did that happen? And, and, and I think that those were some of the things that drove me and the team while we were making the film, you know, to, to find out why and to understand that. Right. And so among the things that the prisoners dealt with on a day to day basis, and I grant you, and it, it, it's, it's expressed in some of the sentiments of the community writ large. And I can certainly remember the attitudes around issues of this nature in the early 70s. Hey, they're in prison. They're the worst of the worst. It's not our problem that they're unhappy, generally, was kind of the American mindset, and with some underlying justification. If you're in a maximum security prison, you must have done something wrong. Making sure you're happy as a clam every day is not my societal obligation. But it went deeper than that. Things like, can you really, as a human being, get along with one roll of toilet paper for an entire month? What kind of food are you asked to eat? What kind of access do you have to toothpaste, to clean sheets? So basic things that are sort of essential to living as a human being. I have those pretty much correct, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the, the uh, former prisoners in the film, you know, kind of, you know, say constantly that we just wanted to be treated as human beings. I mean, that they weren't treated as human beings. And those were small things, you know, like a roll of toilet paper, to big things, to be, you know, beaten, you know, at the whim of the guards, and to be beaten... Uh, if, if you complain, you know, if, if you complain and try to talk to the warden, you know, you, you get a beating so that um, the prisoners in many ways felt that they had no choice but to rebel. But also, you know, you have to also uh, think about it as, as, 
you know, it, it, this also happened in the early 70s. So it happened as we were coming out of, you know, um, you know, Malcolm X and, and George Jackson and the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. So, you know, there's all this ferment that, that's going on outside the prison, but it's being carried into the prison, too, because, you know, the Black Panthers are being incarcerated. Young Lords are being incarcerated. You know, they're reading Malcolm X. The prisoners are, are reading George Jackson. So it, it also, you know, is part of... Uh, that time that, that that they were living in and there was let's be very candid stanley nelson white anxiety about black power black panthers saying you know what yes we're going to legally carry our weapons in accordance with the second amendment mm-hmm. and we're going to express not only our right to live in america but our right to express our voice and to reach for power in ways that we hadn't before And there was a discomfort writ large in this country among white America about all of that. And Attica fits into that, does it not? Yeah, I I think it does. I mean, a couple of the prisoners talk about that and they're very eloquent in in the film to say, you know, that that they were this younger generation that was coming into Attica and coming into into the prisons. And they felt that, you know, they they had to rebel against certain things. And, And as one guy says, you know, sure, we're gonna. We would be punished, and we would take the punishment. But still, we had a right uh, to rebel, and and that was the attitude uh, that, that were coming in, in. That was coming into Attica and so many other prisons also across the country. So, what's fascinating among many things in the Attica story is this idea of this observer committee. Explain what the observer committee was, where the idea came from, and how it f- functioned, at least or tried to function. Right. I mean, I, I think, you know, the core thing to understand about, about Attica, and I'll just reiterate it, is, is, that, is that the prisoners had hostages. They had right. 40 hostages. And, you know, and, and so they controlled the hostages' lives. And so they, in a way, you know, as you said, the, 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 the power dynamic was flipped. So they were in control, you know, and they were, they were threatening to kill the hostages. And they weren't serious, you know, we find that out later in the film, but but they were threatening to kill, to kill the hostages. Um, and so one thing they demanded was that the press come in, but they also demanded that 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 certain people, high profile people come in as observers and, and what became called the observer observer committee. So a senator, Senator John Dunn who was on the prison committee in the Senate, uh, uh, Clarence Jones. State Senate. He was, he was a member of the state legislature, correct? Yeah, state Senator uh, uh, Clarence Jones, who was the editor of the Amsterdam News and where they had a column uh, about prisons and, and stuff like that. Uh, you know, others. So so the, the, they, they not only demanded the press, they also demanded certain that certain people come in uh, and observe and as as it became becomes very clear in the film, they not only were observers, but they also were negotiators. And they came in and, and, and were trying to negotiate a peaceful settlement uh, to this uh, standoff. A very well-known attorney, even by that time, William Kunstler was there, who had represented the Chicago 7, if I recall correctly. Tom Wicker, a celebrated New York Times reporter. I mean, there were heavyweights on this observer committee. Right. And, 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 and again, the, those were all people that, that were demanded by the prisoners. You know, they, right. they said, we want, we want Kunstler. We want the man who defended the, the Chicago 7, you know. Uh, we want uh, Wicker, you know. We want... We want uh, high-profile people and, and people that, that the world trusted, but also that, that they trust. And up until the time that the state police and others came in and the gunshots rained down on the prisoners, were the hostages ever harmed? No. Um, certain certain um, uh, corrections officers were beaten during the takeover of the prison, yes, and, and one, uh, uh, Mr. Quinn was was, be- was beaten very, very badly, and, and yes. also taken out and taken to a hospital. So, so one was beaten very badly, but you know, in the takeover, um, they were beaten. But once they took over the prison, they realized that the hostages were their chip. And you better protect your chip, no you. And they protected them. And and, and what's really interesting, and, and you know, as we see this in the film, is they they put uh, uh, Muslim inmates in charge of of, of the uh, the uh, hostages because the Muslims believe that 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 they were they were uh, prisoners, like prisoners of war. And uh, in, in the Muslim faith, you do not harm prisoners of war. 
um, that, that they now are under your protection. Right. And it, this, the death of the uh, guard, Mr. Quinn, is very important in the telling of this story and in the dramatic arc of this story because negotiations are going on. He's in the hospital. And then three or four days into this, it's announced he has passed away. And now you've killed somebody. Right. right. And all the dynamics of a an, an attempt, it's felt to me, Stanley Nelson, to a, to reach an accommodation began to recede. Yeah. And, 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 and one of the things that, that we knew going into the film uh, was that that was a turning point. You know, so as we as we're constructing the film, that that was one peg that, that we knew we could hold on to. Right? That there was a certain amount, a certain way that that the rebellion was going until Dan Quinn died. You know, and then when he, when Dan Quinn died, now it was there. There was somebody who who was murdered. Um, until then, the prison the prisoners had thirty demands, and twenty eight of the demands were met. 28, they, they, the, the prison official said, okay, you know, you can get more toilet paper. You can have more showers. Uh, so 28 of the 30 uh, were met. But once Dan Quinn dies, as someone says in the film, one of the negotiators says, you know, you don't get amnesty for murder. And what the prisoners wanted and the one demand, you know, the one <laughs> demand that was the sticking point is they wanted amnesty. And they wanted amnesty only for anything that was done during the rebellion. They didn't want amnesty for, for what they had done outside that got them into prison, but they wanted amnesty for anything that was done during the rebellion. And once Quinn died, the lines were hard. The state the said, well, we buried. can't give you amnesty because somebody's murdered. The prisoners said, well, we can't give up amnesty because we don't know what you're going to do. You right. might try well, us all for murder. The lines were hardened, and to a certain degree, the die was cast. Stanley Nelson is our special guest, the documentary film Attica. More on this fascinating subject, an unbelievable film when we return. Major Garrett, host of The Takeout, back for segment three in just a second. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. There was this brother, and I say brother, he was white. His call, they call him Tiny, and he was like a nurse before the Attica Rebellion happened. They set up a medical section in the yard for anybody who had any problems to go, and Tiny would take care of them. And uh, the medical attention in the yard was much better than the medical attention we've got throughout the years. Oh, we had a good time. We was making wine and cooking food outside. It was like a big picnic, like a shanty town. You know, like Deadwood when, uh, when, uh, when uh, Buffalo Bill was out. That is one of the many powerful clips from the movie Attica put together by Stanley Nelson, his co-director, Tracy Curry. Uh, Stanley, uh, you mentioned the Muslim inmates. I think it's important to note that I learned this in the documentary, among many things, that there were ways that the inmates were treated that, were, that varied by race, but also by religion. The Muslim inmates in Attica, as I understand it from the film, were not allowed to practice their religion. And were routinely forced to eat pork and basically had the least amount of rights within Attica. True? Well, I think, you know, the, 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 the Muslim movement that was really catching on, you know, the you know, strict Muslims and the black Muslims, you know, was something new in, in prisons. Attica didn't know how to handle it. Um, you know, as we say in the film, you know, Attica had a farm and, and they grew pigs. And so 
they ate pork, you know, and, um, and there, were, there was no alternative, you know, you, you know, so, so the Muslim uh, brothers that were in there just did, didn't eat, you know, or had to buy whatever they could get from the commissary or whatever food they could save up, but they, you know, they didn't stop uh, serving pork. But also, you know, as it said in the film, you know, the inmates were, were fed uh, on 63 cents a day. So, you know, 21 cents a meal. So even even the non-Muslim right. people who ate pork, you know, it yeah. wasn't a, it wasn't that they were living high off the hog. Uh, right. No, no one was getting intent. baked Alaska, you no. know. Right. No. right. Um, and uh, it was a, an overcrowded penitentiary. If I understand the statistics, it was almost twice again as many inmates as was originally supposed to be in there is that correct yeah it was it was it was massively overcrowded and, and you know and, and overcrowding conditions just just leads to you know uh, chaos you know in, in in prisons I mean it's bad enough but you know if, you, if you're putting you know two people in a cell that's made to, to for one you know or, or just doubling up on everything um, it, it's, it's it's a terrible way and, and you know will usually lead to some kind of friction. I want to cover something that's really important about what happened on that faithful fifth day and then what was said afterwards. All right, shots ring out. There's gas dropped on the inmates. State troopers, police, and others who were there fire their weapons. If I remember the count, nine of the guards are killed that day, and the instant explanation from the state of New York is their throats were slashed because the inmates slashed their throats as they threatened to do a complete lie that it took the medical examiner some period of time to correct. But that was the official story for a period of time that the media in this incredibly pressurized environment ran with for a certain amount of time. Correct. Yeah, I mean that that that's entirely correct. Um, you know, the national media, as we show in the film, uh, you know, we have the national anchors reported that uh, you know nine uh, hostages were killed uh, and that their throats were slit by the inmates. Um, luckily, you know, the next day, um, the medical examiners, you know, comes out with a statement that uh, you know no throats were slit at all, and. and that, that all the hostages and everybody that were killed were killed by bullets and and the uh, the prisoners had no guns the prisoners did have crude weapons did they not i mean they had you know they had as someone says really one of the prisoners said you know you know we had shakes for you know like scraping metal on the ground and sticks and stuff like that you know it was pitiful you know that's what he says you know we were pitiful i mean you know we 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 juxtapose juxtapose that you know in the film with with, with shots of of, of the the guard and, and the highway patrol and, and law enforcement outside you know handing out rifles and loading up shotguns and one guy's walking around i don't know where he got it with a machine gun you know and and just you know um hundreds and hundreds of them, you know, with, with guns and, and, and ammunition. And uh, the inmates, again, had, had no guns. And I'll, I'll reiterate, we have one of the National Guard in the film who talks about what their, their commander told them when they were going in. And he told them that they have no guns. They knew. <laughs> they knew that the prisoners had no guns. And there's almost a false pretense as to why the National Guard was told it was there in the first place. You're in there for a medical evacuation mission. Well, I guess that's sort of technically true, but the carnage that they saw, the bloodshed that they saw, you can tell in these interviews, horrified them to the core. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the great, great things uh, that we were able to get in the film because uh, we have a couple of National Guardsmen who, who talk about the, the carnage, and they were there you know, just for medical emergency with stretchers and to carry people out and, and, and that, and, and they were just like uh, bowled over by, by, uh, you know, what they saw and, and the bloody massacre that they saw. And, and you, you can see from their faces, you know, the guy's eyes are all red and he's, you know, been crying and you know, just talking about it. You know, they were shocked. And, 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 you know, he makes one incredible statement that he said, you know, we were witness to this violence, but we, we had no power to stop it, you know, because the guys next to them have guns and then they're shooting and they, they can't stop them. But but 
they become a player in it because they're there. And, and mm -hmm. I, I think that, you know, um, that, that their lives, you know, till today have really been affected by it um, to be in that situation. One of the things that struck me among many, Stanley Nelson, director with Tracy Curry of Attica, nominated for an Academy Award, is everyone you talk to seems to have, even 48, 49, 50 years later, as vivid a memories as it seems to me is humanly possible. That no one who was there can do anything but remember this moment. I, I think that that's exactly the case. You know, um, you know, um, we want to think that that we're great interviewers, but really, you know, we would ask one question and people would just open up and just you know, spill their guts out because, you know, it was their first time that for many people that they were able and allowed to talk about it and had the forum to talk about what they saw and what happened. You know, one of the things that that uh, you know is said is that you know it, it's the single. Uh, a largest incidence of, of violence uh, on, on American soil since the Civil War, probably besides the massacres of, of Native Americans. But besides that, or Tulsa, or or Tulsa, you know, which which we don't know how we don't know how many people died died at Tulsa, right. and it might it might be you know up to the hundreds. But this was an incredible you know massacre, and and, and to be you know around it and present. Um, and then to kind of get no real, you know, satisfaction and understanding. Uh, I'm sorry, you know, you know, um, it's devastating. And so I think one of the things that that for us makes, you know, made the makes the film so powerful is that you know um, we give the the people uh, uh, a forum to talk about it, and 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 they're just amazing. And, and you see, you know, the humanity, you know, from the prisoners. You know, down to the hostage families, down to the negotiators, down to the news people who were there. You see the the humanity, um, and 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 you know their their hearts being ripped out by what happened in Attica. And what distinguishes Attica is that it was the arm of the state that meted out this violence in Tulsa and Greenwood. That is communal rage, violence. In the terms of massacres of Native Americans, that is the arm of the state. So basically you have the Civil War, Native Americans, and then Attica, the arm of the state carrying out this brutality. That is fundamentally different, and it's what makes all of this story so striking to me. And in segment four of the takeout in our conversation with Stanley Nelson, we're going to talk about how that arm of the state was unleashed and the president, who was okay with it, and the governor who set it in motion. I'm Major Garrett Stanley Nelson as our special guest segment for The Takeout in just one second. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Stanley Nelson is our special guest. He's co-director of the Academy Award-nominated documentary, Attica, his co-director, Tracy Curry. So, Stanley, tell the audience, who was governor of New York at the time, who was president of the United States at the time, and what their interaction was that is at least a part of this unbelievable story. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's really central to to the story and to what, what played out and what happened. You know, Nelson Rockefeller uh, was governor of New York, uh, obviously one of the richest men in the world. Uh, you know, he had everything that, that you could possibly want. Um, you know, he was rich, he was governor, um, but he wanted to be president. Uh, Richard Nixon was the president um, and had been um, uh, elected on a real law and order ticket. You know, um, if you see the old commercials back then, you know, he 
talks about law and order. I mean, that was that was what he was elected on. And so um, in many ways, um, you know, the, the the rebellion in Attica ran up against uh, a governor who wanted to be president and, and, and felt that he needed to be stronger on law and order because he was he was felt to be kind of the liberal end of the Republican Party. You know, there's still today they call him not. Uh, uh, Rockefeller Republicans. I mean, you know, right. that's like the liberal end of the Republican Party. And uh, Richard Nixon was a law and order president. Uh, and, and what we find as, as, as the, the story goes on is that, that uh, you know, uh, Nixon is, is in the ear of, of Rockefeller. You know, Rockefeller's communicating and talking to, to Nixon on the phone every day. And the message basically is don't give ground and when Rockefeller reports that he's not giving ground and he's not going to go there, and that was, that seems to be a pivotal moment in the way the story unfolds, there was a request for the governor to come there, not to come into the yard, not to negotiate, but just to say, I'm observing this process, and however it plays out in a negotiated format is okay by me. He wouldn't do that, and that is, if not a culminating moment, it's near to a culminating moment. Right. The observers, you know, finally really feel that, that if Rockefeller would just go there, and, you know, stand outside of the prison, you know, and just go there and show that he was concerned and he was interested. You know, look, the 28 of the 30 demands had been met, you know, that that, that the thing could be ended and it could be ended peacefully. Um, but Rockefeller refuses to go. And, and you know, the, the Observer Committee call him on the phone. And this is, you know, John Dunn, Tom Wicker. You know, uh, Clarence Jones uh, the, uh, of the Amsterdam News. You know, so there's a high-profile yeah, committee who call him, and he knew some of those those people socially. You know, he knew them, and they call him and beg him to come, and he refuses to come, and then gets on the phone with Nixon, and Nixon says, "Well, you know, you didn't. Of course, you told him you wouldn't go, right?" And he said, "Nah, I'm not going to go." You know, no. Um, and the next day uh, <clears throat> is the massacre, and there's a chilling exchange in which talking to Governor Rockefeller, President Nixon asks the inmates, and I'm paraphrasing here, they're primarily blacks, right? Yeah. And the racial component becomes all too vivid. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of my favorite moments in, in the film, you know, Rockefeller called, uh, Nixon actually calls Rockefeller to congratulate him on the job well done, you know, as 40, over 40 people lie dead, you know, to, to talk about a job well done. And, you know, one of the first things Nixon says, well, was it the blacks? You know, I, I heard I heard it was the blacks that, that, that really did this. I mean, you know, the president of the United States. Um, and, and I think that's one of the really fascinating things about the film, that over and over again, you see this kind of what I call casual racism. You know, you know, because it's like behind the scenes, you know, you, you know, one of one of the first things that 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 they say in the in New York State uh, tapes, New York State surveillance tapes is, you know, you know, hey, that's the ugliest, blackest Negro I've ever seen. You know, <laughs> you know, and, and after the, after they come and take over uh, the prison and kill 40 people or so, you know, they're laughing and. and they start outside the prison gates. They start yelling white power, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's just like, you know, it's like right in front of you. And, and, and then all the way up to Nixon, you know, first statement was, was it the blacks? You know, and he, he says, goes on to say, you know, were any white people killed? Like, what? <laughs> right. right. It's nuts. Um, one thing I want to communicate to the audience, uh, it's such a powerful approach to the documentary. There's no text you don't write this documentary. Your interview subjects are the means by which this story is told. Why did you choose that? And how satisfying was it as you were going through it to see it unfold the way that you did? Um, yeah, well, there's, there's, there's no narration. Um, there's no recreations. All of, all of the footage is real from that time. And, and, and there's no historians even. You know, um, we, had, we had originally thought that we would interview historians and we actually interviewed one historian. And, uh, you know, early on, we kind of started putting together sequences. And it, I mean, he was great, but it just seemed right. like it was coming from another world. 
You know, right. like, like when you have the prisoners who are in there and, and talking about the beatings and talking about the food and talking about getting shot, you know, because I think three or four of the guys that are in the film get, ultimately get shot, you know, um, and you have someone in from the outside. It just it just really didn't didn't fit. And I thought it would be much more powerful just to, you know, let's let's just let's let's just try to do this without even historians and have the voice of. Dan Quinn's relatives and others whose uh, loved ones were taken hostage, their perspective, their sense of trauma is also incredibly real and valid and gives this a very, uh, it feels to me, Stanley Nelson, an across the spectrum texture. Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 was the object um, the objective, and that you know, it, it, I, my 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 heart is out to the, to the hostage families for sharing their stories because the film really exists on so many different levels. You know, they're the guys in the yard that take over the prison, but also outside the prison gates, the relatives of of the hostages are gathered, and and we interview them and. They, they talk about the pain and the fear, uh, you know, that they don't really exactly know what's going on inside the prison gates and, and, and their loved ones are being held hostage. And, and ultimately, uh, some of them are killed. And, and we see the, 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 the pain and the devastation that that also was was uh, put on on the families of, of the people in Attica. And then that's really, you know, important to the story. It wasn't just the, the, the inmates, but it was, it was the families of the hostages and the hostages and a tragedy for so many people. A tragedy for so many people. And I will only let the audience know about this because I can't describe it adequately. And we've run out of time to cover this part of the story Stanley Nelson, but after the gunshots stop, the inmates are brutalized in other ways. All the remainder of that harrowing, bloody, carnage-filled days. And the depiction of that, the pictures, the evidence of that are as harrowing as anything in this documentary itself. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. For those watching on CBS News streaming and listening on our podcast platform, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Our very special guest this week has been Stanley Nelson. He and co-director Tracy Curry have put together the Academy Award-nominated documentary, Attica. That's what our conversation has been. We'll see you next week. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Thanks for hanging around for segment five, the fun and games, sort of, part of our program. Stanley Nelson is our special guest. It's been a tremendous honor to talk to him about his film, Attica, nominated for an Academy Award, the documentary category. Tracy Curry is his co-director on that. As I mentioned during the main show, Stanley Nelson is responsible for some of the greatest documentaries of the black experience in America, Emmett Till, Black Panthers, Michael Vick, and others. Um, so, Stanley, we have three questions we've asked every single guest on the show. We're in our sixth year of this show. So you can take these questions in whatever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life or one of the most influential books in your life? As a documentary filmmaker, I'm really interested in the answer to this question. Your all-time favorite movie. And uh, if you're going to really enjoy some music, either on a long drive or a long flight, what kind of music, artist, or genre is that most likely to be? Um, I'll go backwards because I'm, I'm not sure. I, okay, good. I'm not sure I have a, a great answer for 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 the first two, um, but it it would be jazz. I, I listen to a lot of jazz. Um, if I if I only had one record to listen to over and over again. Um, I, I, I know for jazz fans, it's kind of corny, but it would be kind of blue, you know, by oh, Miles yeah. Davis. I just yep. listen to it over and over again. 
um, I, I film, I, I, it, it really changes as time go, goes by and, and, and I change. I, I really liked uh, the film I Am Not Your Negro. Uh, mm-hmm. came out a couple brilliant. of years ago because I thought it was a brilliant film. And, and, and I thought, I thought it, you know, it, it, it spoke to me in, in such a way that, that I thought nobody else would understand it. And, and then everybody else understood it. <laughs> so, well, you know, and I think that's a real hard trick to pull off. Uh, and I think that, um, and and I, I I don't I don't know what what book probably you know Invisible Man by Robert Ellison, mm-hmm. yeah. you know um, I read that you know like in high school and then I, I read it again a couple of years ago, and I was just blown away you know because it's it it's 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 a novel about the African American experience it's a an experimental novel. And it's kind of a loosen it, loosen it, loosen it, loosen it. It's like, uh, it's wild. It's just, you know, it's, 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 it's really just nuts. And, and I, and I, I would really just encourage people, you know, even if they, they read it in, in high school or something, or, or haven't read it and, and, and heard about it, you know, just, just to, to read it because it's really, it's really crazy, you know, it in is, a good it way. Is. It's it's an experience, much as watching Attica is an emotional experience. To to read Invisible Man is a deeply emotional experience. Stanley, if I understand the biography notes correctly, you're 70 years old, so you've lived in America for seven decades. Um, where do you think we are in this broader conversation? The word reckoning has been used. Maybe it's being overused. I don't know. Where do you think we are in this conversation about our history? our present and our future when it comes to the tremendous and painful and traumatic fault line of race? You know, I mean, I, I think that, that it, it's, it's um, in, in many ways um, the most divided country that I have ever seen by far. And I, and I, and I mean that in a, maybe in a different way that other, other people do, because I think that if you look at a certain you know, a uh, uh, section of young people, you know, you've got to be optimistic, you know, I mean, they're just incredible, you know, and, and what they're doing and how they're thinking. And, and you know, um, it's just amazing, you know, to see that change. But then there's another whole section of this country uh, or, or, you know, people that are just, you know, I, I, I don't know what reality they're living in. You know, and, 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 you know, you see something like, you know, the January 6th thing, you know, where people were, were killed, you know, and people, I mean, the, the violence that goes on and the violence that, in the people's eyes and the people's heart, you know, and then to say, oh, no, they, it was just like, you know, and, and, and it, 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 it's, it's really kind, kind of scary. So, well, I, and, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm sure, I'm sure I don't want to speak for you, Stanley Nelson, but. I imagine one of the thoughts you have about January 6th is how different the response would have been had that been brown and black people on the steps of the Capitol. Yeah, I mean, I try, I try not to go there, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I think that, that, that you know, if, if we go there, it, 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 it's, it's kind of fantasy, right? Oh, well, if they were, you know, because we, we don't know what would have happened, but we do know what happened. Yeah, we <laughs> saw know, what we happened. Know what happened, and, and, and something really happened there. And there was violence and, and, and people were being beaten and, you know, stomped, you know, and craziness. And, and you know, they, they, you know, put up a noose to, to hang Mike Pence and, you know, and, and then just, and within, you know, look, all that happened. But then to say, oh, no, that it didn't happen is, is really kind of scary, you know, and that, that uh, a huge number of people believe that you know it's like oh well what did you see so i think that 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 in some ways you know that the, the the division is is really um you know uh uh, uh really strict and, I, and, I, and we just hope that um you know the sanity will win out mm-hmm. i want you to pay it forward a little bit for my audience uh you are a acclaimed documentarian Give my audience one or two documentary films that you're not involved in that you think would move them, that you think would be important for almost anyone in this country to see. Well, I've already, I've already talked about I Am Not Your Negro. Um, you know, it's hard for me to talk about films that, that I'm not involved in because we run a documentary lab where we work with, with people, you know, making their first uh, 
Oh, uh, right. Okay. So yeah, that's, that, that's open field too, for sure. So, so, you know, another, another film that was nominated for an Academy Award came out of the lab, a film called Ascension. Uh, and that, and that's Jessica Keenan. It's her first film. You know, it's her first film and she's nominated <laughs> for best documentary. And it's, it's an amazing, amazing film. And, and, uh, you know, we helped just a little bit with, with her film. Um, and, and it's all, it's like almost the, the, the total opposite of Attica. You know, if you can, if you can have like, like, you know, as much of an opposite as you possibly could, it, it probably is. And it's, it's a really, you know, fascinating, uh, great film. Stanley Nelson, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. And I'm guessing that that's how you know your career is off to a good start when your first film is nominated for an Academy Award. Right. <laughs> the film is Attica. It's been nominated for an Academy Award. It is astonishing. I urge everyone to watch it. Stanley Nelson, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. We'll see you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.